Hello, Minnesota boxing fans, and welcome to another episode of the Minnesota Fight Night podcast. I'm Brian Johnson. In this episode, my co-host Sean Strauss and I are pleased to be joined by Jake Wegner, a Minnesota boxing historian, researcher, and writer, and founder of the Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame. This is the first part in a two-part episode. So, Jake, Jake, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk Minnesota boxing, especially the old school stuff. Absolutely. Well, why don't we just start at the beginning, and if you don't mind, just uh, introducing yourself and uh, telling uh, the listeners who, who may not be familiar with your story, um, kind of what your background is and, and how you, um, you came, to be, came to be so involved in Minnesota boxing and uh, boxing history, especially. Yeah, Brian, you know, honestly, so my earliest memory, not of life, but of boxing life, is sitting around the television back when it was free and watching, you know, the wild world of sports, watching Ray Boom Boom Mancini come up on TV with my dad. And my dad watched the fight, so I got to see Ray Mancini and Sean O'Grady and the fighters of the early to mid-80s. And it's sort of something that uh, I don't think my dad realized was a tradition, but he happened to have it on, and I sort of got hooked, so I was buying, you know, the Boxing Illustrated back when that was still in print. Uh, everybody else was buying Archie comics. You know, so I was kind of hooked at an early age on, um, on the boxing, even from the elementary school. And it, was, uh, it was bound to happen, the whole historian type thing, just because I'm a history buff. So it's not just boxing. I love world, world, uh, world history. I love uh, military history. You know, I love history of all different sorts. So uh, when you take the two and you sort of combine them, it was bound to, bound to collide sooner or later. So uh, got involved a little bit in boxing in, in college. Um, Found out it's a lot more fun to research it than it is to, to participate in the ring, per se. But it's a, it's a nice uh, nice perspective. There's a lot of funny stories where people all, all found that out them, themselves. And um, got caught up in life for a couple of years, put it on the back burner, uh, got married. And um, it just sort of took off after that. I don't remember exactly what uh, installed that I was at a fight. And um, Wrote up a little report for it for Boxing Digest magazine. Struck up a friendship with Sean Sullivan at the time, who was the editor, and ended up being the Midwest uh, boxing correspondent, which you know doesn't pay well, but it gets you front row seats and you get a good good view of everything. And then I don't really remember how things steamrolled after that. So, somehow I'm doing a a live radio broadcast, and then next thing I know, I'm being asked to do a live webcast when those are really really big about uh, eight years ago. And uh, that was when things in boxing were just starting to resurrect themselves on the local scene. So it's an exciting time to be a part of it. And then uh, next thing I know, I'm being asked to do the documentaries. And then when Ledoux dies, I get the Wall Street Journal calling for a quote. And then I don't even know how it all sort of steamrolls. You know, I, I think it's just because there's not a big, uh, a big long name of lists, I guess, when it comes to local state-by-state historians. And then, um, you know, and then, the, then the Hall of Fame. You know, it's, to me, it, it struck me because I belong to the International Boxing Research Organization, which is a bunch of us historians. I'm not in it right now, but uh, I'm just too busy. But I noticed a lot of the other states had boxing hall of fans. So, I mean, let's face it, there's only so many Ali's and Leonard's and Hagler's that are going to make it to the, the World Boxing, the International Boxing Hall of Fame. But that doesn't mean there weren't a lot of guys who are right on the cusp of it. And of course, there's always going to be some crossover. And I saw states like New Jersey and others having their own, uh, you know, California, Florida having their own hall of fame. And so um, I just know our history. And if some of these states have a Hall of Fame, we damn well should have a Hall of Fame. And so at the time, 2009, I um, had organized a group of uh, good boxing minds at the time to, to get some of the heavy lifting 
one, two, three, and all that kind of stuff. And nobody really knew how it was going to unfold. You know, you had all these different nonprofits telling us you'd be lucky if you get 50 people that'll show up, especially because, you know, boxing's not what it used to be. And we sold out Jack's Cafe Steakhouse, the fire capacity. Of, there's like 253, I remember the number on the dot, in the upstairs. And then we had to go someplace bigger the following year, so we went to Nickel Island Pavilion. I think we still hold a record for that, for, for the Minnesota anyways, and probably for a nonprofit sports hall of fame. But we had just under 400 for that. And of course, after that, they began running. I stepped down from that a few years ago just because I'm, I'm working 70 hour weeks. During the week, it's suit and tie, or the weekends. You get the weekend, Jake, with the, uh, the, the five o'clock and 10 o'clock shadow and the, the pop, you know. So it's uh, this is my loafing around time is the weekend. But you know, that's just sort of in a nutshell, Brian, the five minute version, I guess. It's funny how we tend to uh, sort of uh, inherit a love of boxing from our fathers. I know Sean said the same thing. I remember watching. I'm old enough. To, I remember watching uh, Muhammad Ali on television with my father, and you know when he fought uh, Alfredo Evangelista and Leon Spinks, and back in those days, you mentioned Bumbu Mancini. Man, that was a Saturday afternoon mainstay. Uh, you know, Tim Ryan and Gil Clancy watching those fights with my dad. Yeah, great memories. Yeah. Great memories. Fantastic memories. I wish they could still bring up fighters for free. And I know sometimes they do on expanded cable, but I wish that uh, people ask how boxing hit its knees for a while. I mean, it's, it's not really not that big of a mystery. But Ryan, I mean, so for one thing, you watch the Vikings and Packers or wherever state you're from, the Redskins, formerly known as the Redskins, you watch all your favorite teams, wherever your locale is, for free. Mm-hmm. And you get to watch the guys start off in the rookie season, and they have the buildup from college, and the boxing, that would be the amateurs, and you, you develop as a pro. And you cut that off from boxing, and that's one thing. But there used to be the eight weight champions. Now there's 17. Who can remember 17? One boxing sanctioning organization, you know, the NBA in the 1950s, and it kind of went to the WBA, and then there's the WBC, and then the IBF, and I mean, it just kind of goes and goes and goes. So you take that time, 17 weight class, you have over 100 possible champions. The same thing's starting to happen to MMA. And I love MMA, just not as much as boxing, but the same thing's starting to happen there, where each people are claiming they have the legitimate champion. So, you know, it's, um, if only we could get back to those days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts, Sean? Oh man. Uh, Jake, Jake knows I like to talk boxing. Uh, he and I chatted for like three hours on the phone uh, recently and, um, you know, about many, many things. And for me, the, the biggest things that I, I know about Jake is, you know, from the hall of fame, that's how, you know, I met Jake was via email correspondence. Uh, my dad used to do some writing for uh, eastsideboxing.com and, um, you know, and did some training after he retired, uh, some fighters. And I think somehow he had gotten in contact with Jake in that first year anyway. He was yep. one of the voters um, yep. for who got inducted. So that was a, a big deal for our family. We were uh, really proud of that. Uh, and then I remember wanting to go to the hall of fame banquet, you know, to meet Jake. And I didn't cause of work and I regret it. Um, but I did end up going to this last year's, the 10th anniversary. And, you know, Jake wasn't involved at that point, but um, it's, you know, his legacy is strong there. You know, uh, what's the hall of fame is it's great for the state. Oh, thank um, you. So just want to say thanks, you know, for, for founding it um, because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, like, I guess, it, you know, I can't say it any better than that. You know, it's just as important for the, to capture the history. And I know the history is important to you, 
Jake, um, yeah. in particular? Yeah, big time. I mean, the most rewarding part, I got asked that a lot, actually. It was like, what is the most fun part? I don't know about the fun part. I mean, it's a lot of work. And it's fun. The most rewarding part, though, would be the better question, was for me anyways, and I know it was the same for a lot of the board, was seeing, seeing the faces of the family and, and the fighters, but if they're deceased, seeing the faces of the you know, fighters. Now, I had to go through a lot of situations where I felt like a psychopath, you know, where you're calling people, trying to figure out the next of kin, <laughs> and you always start off with, uh, I might have the wrong number, I just want to let you know that right up advance, but are you the great-granddaughter of Oscar Gardner? They're like, who the hell are you? <laughs> you know that I've never even met him I never met my grandfather much less my great-grandfather and, and and you know it's like because I've read an obituary of obituary of obituary and I tried to connect the dots and the worst thing in the world are when the fighters have daughters because daughters last names change and it's yeah. really difficult but once you track down the right person and uh, it all kind of kind of comes together a couple oh. different topics that we wanted to touch on um yeah. so yeah you'd mentioned Harris Martin the Black Pearl already and that's kind of fits right into one of them, which was pioneer fighters and uh, yeah. especially unknown pioneer fighters, you know, I, yep. that are not already in, a, in the Hall of Fame, you know, which I, to my knowledge, uh, top of my head, I think it's Oscar Gardner, which you mentioned, Pat Killen, um, Danny Needham. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm drawing Kim a blank on the last couple. I know there's five. Yeah, Charlie Kimmicks in there. Uh, yep. I think they might have added one more. Might be it. But who else should be there from Pioneers? I mean, there's, there's, there's a good dozen. Off the top of my head, I think of uh, Pat Killen's arch rival, which is Patsy uh, Cardiff. Right. Patsy Cardiff, you know, so it's interesting. So here's two guys, neither one of them born in Minnesota, which, by the way, means nothing to me. If you're a Minnesota fighter. Um, you can take, I can name off a bunch of pro fighters that were born in Minnesota but never fought here. So does that really mean they're a Minnesota fighter? Really? Uh, so you, Minneapolis, St. Paul, first of all, to back up, People talk about New York City and Philadelphia today. Minneapolis, St. Paul was the mecca of the fight game, and they were, second, I would say, maybe second place, maybe the New York had a speed. But I don't think Philadelphia did, and I, a lot of historians don't either. Not in the 1800s, throughout the 1920s. Uh, today, yes, then no. But you had, if ever there was no action going on in Minneapolis, people would cross the bridge and they'd, there'd be something going on in St. Paul. We also didn't have the uh, level of racism going on in the North that was going on in the South. And you know, I always laugh when people uh, talk about Jackie Robinson and the color line in baseball. Yeah, we broke that a long time ago in boxing, way before, I mean, Joe Gans was fighting, battling Nelson. <laughs> that happened, nobody really cared as long as the money was there, right? That they would, they would show up. Now, I'm not to say that the, the color line wasn't drawn. It was drawn plenty because white fighters didn't want to lose the black, they would often use that as an excuse. But we didn't have as much racism in the North. There was more opportunities because we weren't just one city. We were two cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. There was a lot of action. Fighters became very, very proud to say they're a Minnesota fighter. They would actually, there's actually newspaper accounts of fighters correcting the announcers saying, no, no, I'm from St. Paul. So Pat Killen from Philadelphia, uh, you know, Patsy Cardiff, born in Canada, but kind of from Chicago, then moved up to Minneapolis. These are Minneapolis, these are Minnesota guys, both married Minneapolis women. Both were married here, both had their children here. Killen eventually, uh, well, Killen was on the run, that's another story, for some legal and died of uh, Hyracephalus in Chicago, but buried in, in uh, Philly. 
So he was a Minnesota guy to the last. He owned uh, he owned two saloons and his own little flight ring in the back of one in downtown St. Paul. Uh, Patsy Cardiff, two different saloons in Minneapolis. Those are the two cities that was a bound to happen. So those Patsy Cardiff should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, in there, uh, Oscar Gardner's already in there, but Oscar's nemesis, his number was a guy named Tommy Dixon, born in New Zealand, came over I think at age seven, and born and raised in Minnesota, and he just had Oscar's number. And you can check out their, their fights on, on Box Rec. They didn't win them all. They kind of split them. But, you know, Tommy Dixon's another one. Um, I think a Johnny Van Heese, who's primarily a Wisconsin guy, but he fought enough. I mean, when I was – when we started the Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame, the bylaws, as I recall, even if you were a South Dakota fight, if you fought 10 or more times here, you were, you were, you were eligible to come in. So I think of guys like Johnny Van Heese, I think of a promoter like John S. Barnes, who was like the Bob Arum of his day, but he was in Minneapolis in the fall. Um, Charlie Johnson would be another one. There's a guy with 150 fights. Uh, Oscar's brother, Eddie Gardner, would be another good fighter from that era. Uh, let's see, Morris Self was a featherweight. He was pretty good. And those are the names that kind of come to my mind off the top of my head. And then, and then the African-American fighters. I don't know if about that now if we want to have a different topic no here. i think that's a perfect segue i know that was the the second topic you know that um i wanted to talk about and before brian gets to his if you could just touch on that real quick yeah absolutely so again i mentioned like the the racism wasn't as big up here so it was a big calling card for african-american fighters to come up here it's mine back in the 1880s america the average black man was lucky to make a hundred dollars a year he had a special skill or a trade he could make 200 bucks about a third of what a white counterpart did. You can make 50 bucks for a fight with half of your income, plus side bets. Now, today, that's, you can't bet on yourself, but back then, that was commonplace. If you read the papers from the St. Paul Daily Globe, which are online and chronicling American newspapers, they're free. Check that out. Um, you'll always read about his backers, his backers, his backers. And these are guys that would front the money for the best for their fighters. And they would give the fighters a give you that. Not only would they get their 50 bucks or 150 or whatever the first was, they would also get portions of the side bets. Sometimes they made more money on the side bets than they did on the, the green up on purse. And so you think about the guys who are from uh, the black boxers that referred to themselves as Minnesota fighters. Obviously Harris Martin, the black girl, probably the most famous of them all. Uh, McHenry Johnson, the black star. Uh, Professor Charles Hadley from Louisville, but made his home here and later died in Spokane. Hadley was, Hadley was a really popular fighter in the 1880s. Um, Harry Woodson, the Black Diamond, uh, from Chicago, but lived up here. He's even on our censuses from that time. Lived up here for a while where he could get action. He could stay busy up here. Um, and then Black Frank, he was another big fighter that was up here. He was actually one of the, the uh, arch rivals of the Black Pearl. He had a famous 38 round. It was a fight to the finish and went 38 rounds. They took a boat. The police were trying to find out where it was going to be. So they took a riverboat um, really close to where the uh, historic, historical society would be, down by where the uh, tracks are, Eagle Street Ranch, I think it was. And they went down. They didn't tell anybody where it was going to end. And um, it actually ended up, I've been able to figure it out. It took me about two and a half years. The exact spot where they landed would be if you went to the Shriners Hospital, and there's some stairways that go down to the river. It's down there. You'll find an empty, large, grassy area, and that is where they, an area where they could dock a boat. That's where it happened, and they fought to 
finish. And um, that was a fight between Black Frank and, and, and Black Pearl. And it uh, ended with the Black Pearl carrying his opponent like a baby. They actually carried him. And uh, over by a tree and helped revive him. Those, those black fighters were really, really famous. I also think of Thomas Jefferson, not the president, was the first black recorded fighter in the state of Minnesota. And undefeated, the, the records that I found from him, right, I think they have five and or six and oh. But he was, there's a middleweight, a light heavyweight, you name it. But him and I at Lewis Liverpool were some of the earlier black fighters of the day. But he will show you how well known the black girl was. There's newspaper accounts of him riding through Minneapolis on a carriage with a black top hat. You know, and throwing out coins to the kids. He actually had money to spend. You know, so he could go into the restaurants that other guys couldn't go into. He was, he was a celebrity. He was that big. And so was Billy Wilson, the Black Demon. That was another fighter from St. Paul. He fought, uh, he fought Cassie Carter in a grudge fight. Um, he was also, as a piece of history, the first Black referee in state history. He refereed a fight. I believe he refereed Pat Killen versus Phil Lannon, which is down in Silks Grove. But today, uh, uh, Sort of South St. Paul, right on the bay over there. So those those five, six, seven black fighters right there, all of them could be in the Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame. All of them could. And the thing that people need to keep in mind when evaluating the African American fighters back there, again, it's not just your record. Who would you fight? Let's fight them. What were the weights at? These are guys that typically, because of lack of action, had to fight each other over and over and over. Let's just say the Packers are the Super Bowl defending champions. The Vikings got it. How would you like it if we had to play the Packers 16 out of our, out of our season? It's going to ruin your record a little bit. So, you know, you, so you see the Black Pearl fighting his one-time manager, Professor Charles Hadley. They, they would go in and out as far as arguments. And they'd fight and Black Pearl would kick his butt. Hadley was a good trainer. And then you'd see, you know, the same guys going against each other over and over and over again. Which they didn't really want to do. But the Pearl often gave up 30 pounds. I mean, in a fight, 30 pounds. And that would have, that was not uncommon. By the way, you know, Black Frank, his name is Frank Taylor. So everybody, everybody went by a moniker. So they would give up tons and tons of weight in order to stay busy and make money. But unlike today where guys don't want to lose because their first loss hurts and their second and third loss can drop them down in the rankings. This was their living for people back then. That could be all the way to the fighters from like the 1930s or sometimes even the 40s. Uh, that was their living. You know, you got more carefully managed from the 30s and 40s on up where the win-loss record was going to be a little more calculated as to who you're going to fight and where and all that kind of stuff. But prior to that, it wasn't as much so, not much of a negative So those are important things to consider too. Cool. It's some, some fascinating history there. And, uh, you know, with, with regard to the newspaper decisions, I know back in those days, the uh, – Sports writers of the era would sometimes uh, blatantly promote a certain fighter, and they weren't above taking a little payola from a manager too to um, promote a certain fighter. So I wonder if that played into some of those decisions. Or yeah, it'd be it'd be yes and mostly no because the sports editor would not would because boxing and baseball are the two biggest sports on the planet at the time. If you're calling a fight contrary in your next day newspaper account to what all the other newspapers, keep in mind, Minneapolis had three papers running at the same time. Minneapolis Morning Tribune, the Star Tribune, the Minneapolis Star, the Minneapolis Journal. I mean, if you're all of them sent reporters, and then you got the St. Paul newspapers as well. If you're the only one calling something blatantly ridiculous compared to everybody else, you weren't covering fights anymore because your reputation was the pay. There was no radio. There was no internet. 
that the paper's newspaper rested, lived and died on the accounts of their backers of their, their report. So, um, and a lot of these guys are former sporting men themselves, you know, and frankly, when, when George Barton quit refereeing, he was always the best, because he's the greatest referee, I think, of all time. And when he would cover a fight, nobody ever doubted who George said was the winner of the league. But you'd have guys like him and Billy Hoke and guys like that covering the fights. And doggone, you know, to have somebody on, on the little bit of payroll on the newspaper with the manager's secret weapon. You know, free tickets, free this, free that. Set them up with a date. <laughs> that all happened. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to ask you about some of the, the legendary – a couple of my favorite old-time boxers, uh, Billy Minsky, of course, who talked about the, the book, um, you know, written by Clay Moyle, and um, just what, what, a, what an inspirational athlete when you think about the, the Bright's disease and, and how he took that one last fight when he was suffering from Bright's disease to, yeah. um, to earn some money so he could have a good Christmas for his family uh, last Christmas. What, what can you tell about Tell us about Billy Miskey, and do you have any uh, favorite Billy Miskey stories they like to share? That is my favorite Billy Miskey story. But uh, I talked to a couple different doctors because I wasn't familiar with Bright's disease. I had read about it. I knew his story, but I thought, you know, maybe I should get a little bit of perspective on Bright's and how painful that would be. It turns out one doctor told me it would be almost be impossible because you're getting hit in the kidneys, which it affects. And they didn't call those – they didn't qualify on that as much back then. That happened a lot. Um, but you're getting hit in the gut. And um, he said just making a fist would be incredibly difficult because the amount of water you're retaining and the, the pain because you're not getting rid of the toxins in your body. And then the, they said to deliver a punch would hurt. They said there's no doubt. Now, that's something that all of the doctors that I talked to, I talked to a handful, said without a doubt, just delivering a blow would hurt. They said if he did that, I said, well, he fought with Bright's. It wasn't just one fight. He fought a good dozen or so fights with Bright's disease. That was the final one where you definitely shouldn't have been. And they were just astonished. You know, they were almost interested in the story themselves. So it would have been incredibly difficult. That's my favorite one of him. I mean, Tommy Gibbons, I mean, so here's a guy, and by the way, Miski's best attribute, besides just being tough and having this granite chin, right? You know, going down once at the hands of Dempsey, and that's when he was sick, too. His first fight with Dempsey, some papers said he won. They go back and check him out. Most called it a draw. Some gave it um, to, to Dempsey. But either way, it was cold Dempsey, a pre-prime Dempsey at May, pretty good. Um, but, you know, he, I think one of the best things about Miski was he was just an all-around package. And his combinations were always written about is he some of the most creative combinations of his time. Don't know exactly what they are. I've seen some sort of video of him uh, uh, shadow boxing, which is pretty interesting. Wouldn't have wanted been on the other side of that. He's <laughs> always coming forward, super aggressive, and you're not going to knock him out, so you better have a different plan. Didn't have to outbox him. That's what Tommy Tommy Gibbons did, you know. And so, um, Tommy Gibbons, uh, I mean, here's a guy who just does nothing wrong. Everything's by the book. And later on, he developed. Uh, of course, he got to train with his brother, the fam, right, Mike. But later on, he developed a hell of a knockout punch, and that was the that was the that was the liver shot. I think it was something like 22, 23 consecutive knockouts in his career, and he claimed in a radio interview that his family shared with me it was all liver shot. He said, I'll drop a man, I don't care how strong you are, you hit him at the right time in the right spot, and they're going to drop. They're going to paralyze. He fought with Oscar De La Hoya and Hopkins. Didn't even look that tough. I had to watch it over again on the replay when that happened. We've seen it many, many other times, you know, when uh, fighters did that. I mean, Tony Zale ended Graziano's night with that. 
You know, so when Graziano was up in that particular fight, so I mean, the, that liver shot's brutal. But Tommy Gibbons was a master of it. One funny story my friend George Blair told me back, uh, you know, God rest his soul. But he had uh, told me that, you know, Tommy later on went to be on the, sher the sheriff of Ramsey County. His deputy was Johnny O'Donnell, the lightweight uh, from St. Paul. And uh, there was a rowdy bar fight. Things were getting out of hand. Tommy walked in unarmed. And this would have been, he would not have been a young man. He would have 1940s and he was prime in the 1910s and 20s. He walked in there and uh, the deputies weren't getting order with nightsticks. And he shouted at the main antagonist. And I can't remember the guy's name. But he said, you know, listen, this little thing is over right now or else you and I are going to go back there and you can bring that knife with you and I'm just going to bring these, but it'll all be over. You can have it your way. I don't, I don't warn people two times. And the guy said, no, Tommy, my apologies. It's, it's over. It's over. And he gave himself up and got arrested. And um, that was an interesting story. You know, so uh, George had told me that. I believe his father had actually been present when that happened. If I remember the story correctly. So it's always interesting to hear some of those firsthand stories that don't make the news. Well, Jake, Sean and I want to ask you about the Willie Pep story. Where, and Willie Pep was an amazing defensive fighter. And supposedly his defensive skills were so impressive that he once went around against Minnesota boxer Jackie Graves without throwing a single punch. What do you have to say about that? I, 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 I didn't have any idea how big of a thing it was going to be when I sort of like set the record straight on that whole thing. But... To me, it was like it's the equivalent of Babe Ruth calling his home run and actually doing it. And only this didn't happen. And I went in thinking that it did, actually. I just wanted to read about it. And so here's Don Riley, who's often credited with the story from St. Paul. He wrote stuff about you guys every day leading up to the fight, voted everybody. No mention of it. No mention the day after, the day after that, the day after that, the day after that. I went out three weeks, nothing. In fact, Riley never talked about it in print at all until the 1970s when Pep came up here and met Jackie Graves, which I have a photograph of of them together, at a, at a luncheon. Graves had just moved back from California to Austin. And the interesting thing is, Graves just became aware at that time. Now, when I met him and interviewed Graves, he had dementia pretty bad. One moment, he'd be like, there's no way that happened. But the interview that I, that I first taped him at, he's like, really? I mean, I, maybe it happened. He was really Pep, you know, I, I don't know. You have to listen to the context. Some people have taken my interview and print and take it out of context. It really wasn't that way. But um, as you know, Sean, not only is there no mention of a punchless pep, they swear it's the third round. Well, you can take your pick in any round. This was the fight of the year in Minnesota. Ray's broke his vaunted left hand. He's a left-handed fighter in the second round. Almost knocked pep out. Pep said in post-fight interviews, is the hardest I've ever been hit. And he fought Stadler. I mean, and all these other guys. He fought 101 opponents at that time. He said, I've never been hit harder. It's in the papers. And um, so it's, he said, there's nobody, that guy can't beat. So, I mean, Graves fought the whole fight with a busted left hand and still knocked Pep down twice in the sixth. It's unbelievable. So it's a great fight. It's a travesty. No film exists of it. It just would have been yeah. great. But there's no mention in any newspaper about a punchless Pep. Now, Don Riley, you know, and God rest his soul too. I'm not here to, to, to smirch him. But I would challenge Don on it when he was alive, and he'd get a little tested sometimes. But, you know, he couldn't explain why nobody talked about it until the 70s. I mean, I think that whole story originated there. But when Graves first heard about it, this is the interesting part. Graves first heard about it at that Golden Gloves breakfast. He was Bill Kane, God rest his soul, all the great ones are dying. Bill Kane told me, he was, hey, I was Jake, I was standing right there. Jackie said, 
<laughs> telling people what? Because he overheard him telling people at the at the at the, the dinner that how he I went three rounds in the third round I faded I did this and Grace said you did that Willie he said Grace or Pep sort of turned around a little well come on Jack he's like if you, Willie if you can win a round without throwing a punch why didn't you do that every round why'd you have to beat the hell out of me <laughs> that's an interesting one so it's sort of yeah. it's funny. and I have the photograph of them together that at that uh, dinner or lunch whatever it was from back then it's kind of interesting. Thank <music> you.